Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to meet as your people. We thank you for uh, the beautiful morning, and uh, we thank you for the, the privilege of meeting on the Lord's Day. Um, we pray, Lord, for your, uh, your mercies upon us, and that you would fulfill your promises among us here today as we meet. And uh, we thank you especially for your word that you have given to us, and help us to have a, a deeper love for it and a, a, um, a, a better skill in interpreting it, that we might know your word better, that we might know you better, and thus live in ways that please you. And so, Lord, we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we continue our, our look here at... Um, some of the skills that are needed for interpreting the scriptures. And we, uh, most recently here, and of course some of this started before the shutdown, but um, most recently in our approach, we've been looking at some of the skills, some of the methodologies that we need to implement as we interpret the scriptures. And uh, uh, these are things that we use, of course, all the time, uh, whether we're reading a book or uh, a news article on the internet or a letter from a friend we're always constantly using methods of interpretation and the question is how uh, how good are those methods and how well are we implementing them so when it comes to the scriptures um, one of our most foundational ideas is that we use scripture to interpret itself we don't impose things onto the scriptures we let basically God speak for himself. And um, most of it's pretty straightforward, but there are definitely places that are hard to understand. And so we use the parts that are clearer to help us to understand the parts that are less clear. Since we can't go and talk to Luke and say, hey, Luke, what did you mean here? Or talk to Moses, what did you mean in this passage? We, we need to use uh, other scriptures to help us to do that. Now, the the next aspect to all of that is context. And um, this happens all the time. You know, we probably can point to at least one example every day in our lives where we misunderstood something because we took something out of context. Or we didn't listen to our spouse or our coworker as they were speaking and we interpreted it a certain way, but we didn't listen to the whole sentence or the whole paragraph. Uh, or somebody did that to us. And so um, we, we use this issue of context all the time. And so um, I use the example of the word love. It can mean all kinds of things depending on the context. And so then we talked about the different circles of context. And um, you know, we start, what's the immediate word mean? What's it mean in the sentence and then the paragraph and you know on out and uh, eventually looking at all the scripture if necessary to help us to understand um, and then here most recently then we've been talking about this method here what we call the historical grammatical method and uh, this is just as significant as any of the others that we've looked at thus far and it is comprehensive just like scripture interprets scripture and it's, um, you might say, another way of saying Scripture interprets Scripture, but maybe looking uh, more specifically in these ways. Um, 
the Bi- uh, God has revealed himself in the Bible in a story, not in an abstract propositional way. Now, there are abstract propositions in there, certainly, but that's not how he's given it to us. Even in uh, Exodus 20, where we see the Ten Commandments, and those are maybe some of the most abstract things that we see in the scriptures, right? You shall not murder, you shall not steal, and so on and so forth. Um, it's still put in the context of a story. People were at Mount Sinai. God had just redeemed them. He was speaking from the top of the mountain. The people trembled. Moses was their mediator. You know, it's all in the context of a story. And so it's vitally important then that we understand that story from Genesis to Revelation. And the better we understand the history of God's ways, uh, the better we will understand those propositions. And put them rightly in the context and rightly understand uh, what God is saying to us. If we abstract it and just memorize our catechism or memorize the Ten Commandments without in the having it in the context, then we tend to ignore it, we tend to misunderstand it, and so we need to put it in its context, uh, and in particular, the historical context that God has given to us. So we started last time, then on this other aspect, and that is the grammatical part of this big term. And as I mentioned last week, um, the history part of it is fairly straightforward. Now, some of us don't really like history. We have a hard time remembering names and dates and so forth. Uh, But there are very few, if anyone, that can't follow a story. Right? Even the most, you know, we're talking about Susan's brother, Mike, or Joe, your brother, or something. You know, even people that have cognitive challenges in one way or another usually can follow a story pretty readily. And, and um, when it comes, though, to the grammatical aspect, you often hear people say, well, I'm not good at grammar. I'm not good at English. And uh, I, I don't remember what a noun or a verb or a pronoun is or something like that. And, and oh, that's too hard. Well, admittedly, it is a harder thing, as I just mentioned, to rehearse the story of the Exodus and coming to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and all of that. You know, that's, relatively speaking, pretty straightforward. But to break that down and look at every word following... Paul's teaching in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God, we, we're not going to fully understand that story unless we look at every word. And thankfully, many of those words are pretty straightforward, and we can read through it, and we believe in the perspicuity of scripture, meaning that, that even uh, a, a young child can read this and understand most of what's there. Um, Nevertheless, you, you're not going to understand that story unless you look at each word. And so it is, it is important for us to um, not just communicate with one another, not just the ability to, to read and, and so forth in everyday life, but when it comes to the scriptures, to be able to, to look at those words and understand what they, they mean, how they fit together, what we call the syntax, um, and and. And from that, then, we understand, we have the ideas, we have the story. The story is built on the grammar, you might say. And um, 
And so <clears throat> whether or not we like it is really beside the point. It's what God has given to us, and we need to do it. And some are going to be better at it than others, but uh, we all must do so. And this, so this is why historically the Jewish people have been very adamant about everyone learning to read and write, uh, even girls. And so we have evidence of this prior to the first century that uh, boys and girls were taught to read and write so that they could understand the scriptures. Now, in the first century, as I have mentioned at, at, at different times, um, girls and women, they weren't always educated, but they at least were given something. Then, of course, in the earlier years of our own country, remember the old deluder acts in, in uh, New England, for example, the whole point of those was um, we wanted everyone to be able to read and write so that we would not be deluded by Satan, deluded by things that are false, and so on and so forth. And, and look what's happened in our own country. The ability to read and write in our country today is maybe at an all-time low. And so it's no surprise people are being deluded by what they're seeing and hearing in the media and so on and so forth. Um, so the importance of this is, one, to understand the scriptures, and that's first and foremost. But it also helps us to weed out what is false. Um, and so um, this isn't as uh, exciting, maybe, for some people, but it is still necessary. And in many ways, it is... Um, first on the list we need to understand this if we're going to even understand the stories and then be able to put things in its context and allow scripture to interpret scripture and and so forth and so as i um, uh, mentioned last week uh, the this idea is really the first two points that i mentioned last year when i was talking about being a faithful mouthpiece words must be our focal point words over ideas we focus on the words to to develop the ideas and the what i call the exegetical over the homiletical we need to look at the way god has given the words to us not focus on our words and how we present things because when we do so we often then obscure god's words and the whole point of all that is when we do that we call attention to ourselves rather than to God's word. And so we need to focus on words as God has given uh, them to us. So um, I don't know how to state it any more strongly. Um, this is vitally important to understand the scriptures. We've got to go to the building blocks, and that is the language itself. Uh, and as I've said um, mentioned last week and a year ago when we were talking about the mouthpiece um, the best way of doing that is understanding the original language um, and that's just going to communicate um, let me say it this way we're going to understand God's communication a whole lot more thoroughly that said we can take a good English translation and doing the same thing working through each of the words is going to help us to understand and, um, and be able to um, understand our God better, his will better, our responsibilities, and so forth. Um, okay, so with that in mind, um, pick up where we left off. 
and that is we were looking at probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And this most famous verse is um, has a lot of questions, actually. <laughs> there are a lot of grammatical and syntactical questions um, that, that we need to work through if we're going to understand it rightly. You know, what does God mean? Now, in our circles, we might say, oh, yeah, da-da-da-da-da. You know, you, you go somewhere else, and they're going to have a very different definition of God. Hey, what does love mean? What does world mean? Okay. And then, of course, we talked about so, this adverb. Is it talking about God's love being so great? Well, no, it actually calls us back to verses 13 and 14. God loved us in this way, just like Moses raised the serpent up on the the standard, and if everyone looked at that serpent, they would be saved from the plague. So, in the same way, everyone who looks at the Son who is raised up on the cross, then we will be saved from the plague, from the judgment. Um, and so, uh, looking at each one of these is, is vitally important. Of course, this one: what in the world does only begotten mean? <laughs> okay, so, lots of questions here. Well. <clears throat> Let's continue and finish the verse. And again, let's use the New King James. Just so we're all using the same translation. Uh, we're using an English translation here. So the New King James ends it this way, that whoever believes in him um, <clears throat> should not perish. Okay, so, first of all then, what is that as a part of speech? Yeah, it's being used as a conjunction here, okay? And I, I put that there, this is the same thing here, okay? <clears throat> now, as I mentioned last time, that can mean different things. It can be used in recitation, it can be used as a pronoun, it can be used as an adjective, here it's being used as a conjunction. All right, now, whoever, what is that? It's a part of speech. Okay, being used out. Subject, Okay, that's right. So noun subject here, this is a subordinate clause or a dependent clause. Okay, now in the Greek, it literally says all who believe. So it puts all this together. It's actually what we call an articular participle with the adjective all with it. All who believe, or all the ones who believe, you could say. So here it's often uh, paraphrased slightly in this way, that whoever believes or 
whosoever believes in him. Okay. So then believes is what? What part of speech is that? Okay. And the other ones here, gave and loved, past tense. What's this one? Okay, and, and the Greek actually emphasizes an ongoing idea here. Okay, whoever believes, not just a momentary belief, but who continuously is believing in uh, in the Lord. Okay, so whoever believes. All right, now what's in him? What do we call that together? Okay, prepositional phrase. So what's the preposition? All right, and then what's him? Okay, object and preposition. What'd you say, Eric? Okay, okay. And what part of speech is that? What's him? Pronoun. Okay. Pronoun. All right. All right. In him. All right. Now, should not perish. What's the verb of that? Perish. Okay. Now, what's not then? Okay, it is an adverb showing negation. Okay, it's the uh, the negative here, and then should. What would we call that? Yeah, it's it's really helping here. Um, it helps the parish, right? Okay. <laughs> now the Greek actually puts this in the subjunctive mood. Danny, remember the subjunctive mood? What's the subjunctive mood communicate? Yeah, yep, okay. It's, it's not a statement of fact. It's a statement of something that may or may not happen, okay? So it's conditional to some degree, okay? The condition is this. If you believe, you're not going to perish. If you don't believe, you will perish. That's the way it's presented to us. All right, now, but. What is but? Okay. And this is the one that I've talked about at different times that is the really strong one in Greek. It's not just but. It's a strong contrast, rather, to the contrary. And isn't that a nice contrast between perishing and everlasting life? And it's a strong contrast here. Okay, so, what's this? What's half? Okay, verb. And it's actually the same as perish. It's in the subjunctive mood. So again, there's, it's conditioned on the belief. If you do believe, you will have but if you don't believe, then you won't have. So the condition is is having to do with faith. Okay. And again, um, what? Uh, well, I could go back here uh, to perish. I guess I didn't bring that one out either. Um, the all right. Um, are those? Trying to think of how to put this as a question. Uh, maybe a statement would be better. Um, when you have the subjunctive mood, uh, it doesn't necessarily communicate time in Greek. 
same same is true in Hebrew and and, and so forth. Um, but it it is then connected to more of the main idea, um, and that is an ongoing faith will have an ongoing not perishing and an ongoing having life. Okay, and so it's all uh, put together in that way. Um, all right. <coughs> What do we have here then? What's, let's start with life. What's life? Okay, it's the direct object. And what then part of speech is that? Okay. okay. It's the object of our verb here. And then what's everlasting? Okay, and, and that's what it is. We might. Uh, say that's a, a participial form or something like that here in English, but it's uh, just basically an adjective, which participles, of course, can function that way. Um, all right. Now, for those of you who struggled with what we just did, didn't it force you to stop and look at every word and understand it better? Even if you got most of those labels wrong, or you're like, oh, man, I don't remember that. It's been too long. <laughs> okay? It still forces you to slow down and look more carefully at the text. That in and of itself is a good exercise. Now, ideally, you'd be able to label all of this and understand it very thoroughly. But even if you don't get there, it still forces you to slow down and look more carefully at the text. And therefore, you're less inclined to skip over things. You're less inclined to impose things on the text. You're more inclined then to hear what it's saying. Even that, um, if you will, less complete way of looking at it, it still has benefits. And so, um, you know, I when I've taught Greek and even as I've been teaching the Hebrew class, uh, I, I say this regularly. You know, even if you never master the languages, it's going to help you. Um, we need to be careful that we don't become dangerous with our limited knowledge, but uh, it still does help uh, in this process. So <laughs> let's go back to something that I was saying last time. This phrase here, air clause, and this one here, um, I wrote this one, and now we have this one here. Notice you have three overall parts to this verse. For God so loved the world. And that's, that's your thesis statement, if you will. For God so loved the world. And the result of that love, then, is that he gave his only begotten son. And God's love is what led to the sending of his son. Okay. Notice how that immediately eliminates this idea that God the Father is just this mean guy and Jesus came because he loved us so much and he kind of strong-armed the Father into saving us or something, you know, accepting us back into heaven. No, no, no. It's totally not right. God the Father initiated this. And the result of his love is sending his Son. Okay. So then... The purpose of sending his son is this. Okay, you see how it's fitting together. 
The result of his love is sending his son, giving his son. And by giving his son, the purpose of that is to save us. That we would look, right, to the bronze serpent on the cross, so to speak, right? Looking to Christ there so that we can be spared from the judgment. And so... As we look at things, we look at the individual words, and then we look at how they all are put together. All right. Well, obviously, we could do a whole lot more here, but at least it gives us a sense of, of what we're doing. Questions or comments here on this? Joe. That made the argument made that the, the word whosoever moves out the Well, there's no question that this clause here is emphasizing our responsibility, but that doesn't, I'm not sure it would prove either position. Peter, fisherman. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And it's, I think, a testament to even the extremes of, of a male dominated society still had the, the education of the people taking place. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, in fact, I think as a general rule, <laughs> They'd probably do better on on standardized tests today on these things than many of us would. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, you would expect Luke to have the education as a, as a doctor, but for Peter or even John, you know, it's it's. Uh, uh, I would say again, I think it challenges us to do better to improve, to grow, that we might understand these things uh, that God has given to us. Um, all right, let's do one more here. And I'll just say this. Uh, let's turn to John 1, verse 1. Um, as we're turning there, uh, I do this every... Uh, every week, every passage I preach to you, I do this. I start from the Greek. I look at every single word. What is it? And then what is that communicating? 
And then I look at the commentaries and how they understand these words. And, you know, some of them will only emphasize, well, what does world mean? Or what does only begotten mean? Others will look much more carefully at, at uh, many, if not all, of the words. And um, um, I, I, on occasion, I'll point out some of those words specifically and the grammar and the syntax and so forth. Many times I, I read them and then focus on, on the ideas from that. But uh, anyway, I go through this process here. All right, so John 1.1, 1, 1, what's it say? What is that? Okay, prepositional phrase. All right, what's the preposition? And what's the object? Okay. And so, of course, it's a noun here. Um, and what's the? Okay, that's an It's not just a beginning, but the beginning. All right, now what's was? terms for it, a state of being verb, a linking verb, a to be verb, and this of course is present or past, past, so it's the to be verb in the past, so of course in English we use the word was, all right, then we have word, what's that? Okay, it is a noun, and back to your other part here just a minute. So the again is what? Definite. So not just a word, but the word. One in particular. I'm sorry? Yes, yes, it's proper noun. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, even if you only have the Greek understanding of the logos, it still would be considered proper and in, in their mindset, but obviously we see this as as Jesus, of course. So definitely uh, proper noun. Okay. Now, when we have a to be verb in a sentence like this, we have a subject, and then we have the to be verb, and then we have what we call the predicate. Okay. <coughs> Now, in a normal sentence, like Johnny threw the ball, Johnny is the subject, throw is your verb, and the ball is the direct object, because the ball is being acted upon. The verb is doing something. We call it an active verb, right? An action verb. Okay, when you have a to-be verb, we're not acting. Okay, if you say Johnny is tall, Johnny's not doing tallness. He is tall. He's not acting on this idea. It's just something that is true about him. A state of being, as we would say. So because of that, we don't use the direct object. We use what we call a predicate. Predicate noun, typically. It could be a predicate adjective. It could even be a prepositional phrase. It could be uh, a a variety of things. Now... What's the subject of this sentence? 
word is the subject. And in the beginning is your actually your predicate. It's a prepositional phrase being used as, um, as the predicate of to be. Okay? What's being predicated. Right? The word was in the beginning. Now, of course, we can use predicate to refer to the whole thing and so on and so forth. But uh, especially in Greek, we break it down even more specifically than that. And so this is the subject. This is your verb. And this is your predicate. Now, why do we put it in this order? Doesn't it seem to be backwards? Don't we want the subject first? Yes, for emphasis. How? How is it? Okay. And why is John doing that? Yeah. Take us back to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. It's the same thing. NRK is the Greek, or Bereshith is the Hebrew. Okay. In the beginning. It's right there. And so John very deliberately does it this way. Even in the Greek, the prepositional phrase is first. Okay. And, and that's for a reason. And, and so we do that in English just to call our attention back to Genesis 1.1. And we can do that. We can put prepositional phrases before to be verb. Um, but strictly speaking, the, the order would be the word was in the beginning. Okay. We do the same thing with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, and so on and so forth. It's actually backwards uh, in terms of the syntax, but it's uh, maybe a little bit more, I don't know, creative or something like that to, to, to do it that way. So what's the next part? That's in the beginning was the word. Okay, was there an and there? Yes. And the word was it said with right okay all right so what's in how far speech is that okay it's a basic linking conjunction <clears throat> but right is an adversative right it's a contrast here it's links together so this is true and this is true all right so what is word then again Okay, and as Betsy said, right, proper noun. And again, we have the definite article, right? Not any word, but the word. And then again, we have this, right, our the uh, verb. Okay, now what's with God? Okay, prepositional phrase. So, with, of course, the prep and preposition. And you can say, again, this is the proper noun. This is your object of the preposition. So the word was with God. So notice we have two prepositional phrases with the be verb. Here we put it first. Here we put it after. Which is also how John does it in the Greek. Uh, but this is the more normal way of putting it. Um, all right. Let's do the next one. What's, what's the last part then?
what's God here then? Is that you, Betsy? What'd you say? There's so much that we could say here, but that's the, those are the words. Not too complicated. The to be verb can be rather complicated for people. Whenever I get to lesson eight in my Greek text, students are like, "How does this work?" You know. Um, all right. So, in the beginning was the word. All right. The word was with God, or you could say in the presence of God. Is another way you could translate that preposition. So, are the Word and God the same? Are they identical? Now, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between the Word and God, because the Word is with God. It's not the same, identical, same as God. But the word is still God, right? All right, now. When we look at this statement here and this statement here, it's pretty easy to discern what the subject is, right? The noun is the subject. You're not really going to think of the prepositional phrase as the subject. The question that arises here, which is the subject, word or God? Okay. Now, um, Nathaniel may remember this. I give five rules, and not just mine, okay, when I, whenever I teach this. The question is, which of the nouns is the subject? There are five things for us to work through to help determine what the subject is. Because in Greek, they're going to be in the same case and all this sort of thing. Um, and when you have two nouns, and in this case proper nouns, how do you determine it? Well, this is the answer right here. Which one has the definite article? And since word or logos has a definite article, John is saying that's the subject. Okay. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses get all into a tizzy because there's no definite article in front of God. And they say, oh, well, the word is just a God. But John doesn't put a definite article in front of God because then God would have been the subject of that statement. And by putting God as the subject of this statement, what would it tell us about the Trinity? There would be no trinity. John is very specific on how he says this. It's not God was the word, because that would mean that the father came to earth as the son. It's the same person, though. We call this modalism. He's kind of like an actor in the play. And in part two, he came as Jesus. But that's not what John is saying. 
reason why he does not put the article here is because he doesn't want to say that. He puts the definite article here to tell us that's the subject of your statement. And so he says the word is God, but he's different from God, different from the Father. Very deliberate. So do you see what I'm trying to show you here is as we go through this and we look at every word, it forces us to slow down and look and, and be more intentional about our understanding. But we also need to step back and look at the bigger picture. What's being communicated then by these words? For, for uh, John 3.16, right? We have the three parts of the, of the verse. So you have the, the results, you have the purpose. Here now, as we put it together, you know, especially this one, very intentional to show us John's understanding of the Trinity. Um, and so we need to do that. And then, of course, we look at the broader context. What's verse 2 say? What's verse 3 say? And so on and so forth. As well as going back to Genesis 1, etc., etc. Nathaniel. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, the goal here is not to make you master grammarians. But my goal here is just to show you how significant this is in our interpretation of Scripture. And it really behooves all of us to, to learn to do it better. That we might better understand the word that our God has given to us so that we can better understand Him. Um, okay. <clears throat> well, I better quit. So, um, we'll pick up with some more ideas here on the, all of this here next time. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, your word, both living and written. We praise you, our Father, that you uh, loved us enough to send your Son that we might uh, look to him for salvation. And we praise you, our Lord Jesus, that you are God, but also um, different from the Father different person. Lord, we, we uh, struggle to understand these things and what only begotten means and, and all of that. And yet, the main point is clear. And uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you have done then to, uh, to restore us to yourself. Lord, we pray as we come to worship now that you would uh, strengthen us in these ways by the third person, the Spirit, to apply the work of Christ for us, that we might um, grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge, grow in our, our understanding and our, our, um, our godliness, our living, uh, that you may be glorified in it all. So we pray these things then in Jesus' name.